Hey, this is Big Rev. Thanks for tuning in to Masterclass Theology, a weekly podcast where we study books of the Bible a verse at a time and apply it to our lives. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Let's rock. Well, hello, everybody. We are in 1 Peter 3. This is Masterclass Theology, and I am Big Rev, otherwise known as Joel. And we have, we got a great text tonight. It is a challenging text, but we're going to make it through it. So let's open the word of prayer. God, thank you for this text. Thank you for this opportunity to study your word. And we just pray, O oh Lord, that we're challenged and encouraged. And we get to learn all about more suffering tonight, Lord. And we just pray, God, that you really just, you teach us and we're ready to listen. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so our subject tonight is suffering. This is the uh, To the Exiles this is in 1 Peter, and he's writing to exiles, aliens and strangers, as it were, people who live in the Roman Empire but are not putting their allegiance with the Roman Empire. Their allegiance is to Jesus. And though they live on this earth now, they're just sojourners. They're just passing through, as it were, going towards a city whose architect and builder, as Hebrews says, is God. So we're going to learn about suffering more tonight. So suffering was on their minds. They had been persecuted. Being persecuted, some of them had been martyred. Um, but we have an idea here that they're going through a tough time. So Peter is writing to people who are going through a very rough stretch. Especially when you have certain Caesars like Nero. And there's certain Caesars that were very high on the, the persecution list. You think of like a Trajan. But yeah, Nero is, is the one everyone remembers. But we're in 1 Peter 3, and we're just starting in verse 8 here. How to journey with one who is suffering. Verse 8. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. So right there in the Greek grammar, those are all adjectives. Can I give you a big word? They're imperatival adjectives. So they are imperatives. Imperatives in grammar is... You must do this. It is imperative that you... Okay, so these are adjectives that better describe these people. In fact, all of you, Peter says. So these are going to be five adjectives here. You can, you can count them off. Okay, like-minded, number two, sympathetic, number three, loving one another, number four, compassionate, number five, humble. Okay, so we got Philadelphia in there. So the idea of loving one another, okay, we get that. But what we have here is two ways to think, two ways to feel, and one way to be. Of these five adjectives, two of them involve your thinking, two of them involve your heart or your feeling, and the third one is just kind of your identity. So the first one is like-minded. And it would, be, it would be easy to say, well, what would unite us as a Christian? The more theological answer would be something like, well, we all hold the same doctrine." And that is a thing that does unite us. But there's a different flavor going on here. It's not something really outside that's uniting us. It's something from the inside. So what, is, what do we have in common on the inside here? We have this focus. We have this perspective. That though we may be going through trials, there, are, there is a perspective to those trials. And that perspective is Jesus so we have two ways to think, two ways to feel, one way to be. The first way to think is being like-minded. And we have this common focus on Jesus. 
when we go through these hard times, we focus on Jesus. That is the one thing we all have in common in terms of we all have the same object of our faith. Jesus. We focus on him. So we're not going to be surprised tonight when Peter brings up Jesus as an example, because that would be what would be on their mind. Next is sympathetic. That's the first way to feel. Sympathy is seeking to experience the feelings of another. And the author of Hebrews, I believe it was in chapter 4, kind of gave us that idea that Jesus is that way because he knows what it is like to be tempted. Like we have a great high priest who understands that, and yet he had no sin, but he, he can sympathize with you and me, and this is why he's able to mediate. So as we sit with somebody who's going through suffering, we have that same like-mindedness. We have that same focus. If you're sitting with somebody, everybody can be like a biblical counselor, as it were, open up God's word and encourage one another. To be like-minded, that same focus, but also to have sympathy, to really seek to experience what they're going through. Help me understand what you're going through. Paint that picture for me. And for some of them, they had suffered. And so they knew exactly what that was like. But that was the goal here, to be like-minded with one another, to be sympathetic with one another, and to love one another. Loving one another is just kind of the, uh, you know, the, the two ways to think, two ways to feel, one way to be. That's the way to be. All these other four adjectives really describe what that love looks like. To be compassionate. Compassionate is, I, sympathy is I'm trying to experience what you're experiencing so I can better understand what you're going through. Compassion, therefore, is to say, now that I know that, now I want to care for you. I don't want to just fill my head full of knowledge of what you're going through. I want to care for you. I want, kind of, I want to suffer alongside you if I can. I want to help bear, bear a burden if I can. Compassion is to take that next step. To be care pastors. Not only to listen, to learn about people, but actually journey with them and suffer alongside them. To really feel what they're going through and try to care for them. It's like an experiential kind of care. And finally, the final way to think here is, is to be humble. And humility is this idea that I'm not really going to think of myself as, I'm not going to be beating up on myself, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to focus on being a servant. I'm going to take the lower place when given an option. I'm going to take the lower place, I'm going to sacrifice when given the option, and I'm going to serve. That's humility. The idea that I'm going to, it's like in Philippians 2, where, where Paul talks about Jesus, didn't, he, he kind of made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. And you know, we're supposed to have that attitude. That's what humility is. Putting yourself in a lower place as opposed to exalting yourself. So that's how to journey with the one who's suffering. And so he's, Peter was writing to people who were suffering. How are you to be as a church? How are you to be with each other? How are you to care for each other? with these attitudes. May these adjectives describe you. If they did describe you, you would be a really good friend. You would be a really good friend. You would be somebody that if you're suffering or going through something, I would want to talk to. I would look at you 
And as a care pastor, if you were this way, I would want you on one of my care teams, one of our care teams, because you would be caring for people who are going through really hard times. You have wounds, and those wounds become scars, and now people, as I like to say, people with wounds will listen to people with scars. If you're going through something, to have someone who's sympathetic, who's compassionate, who can bring you to that same focus you have in Christ, who's humble, who wants to serve, how to journey with one suffering, verses 9 to 12. How do I respond so, I'm not, so I can't have vengeance, right? How do I respond? 9 to 12. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. Oh, come on. It's so fun. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. What? Because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For, and he quotes Psalm 34 here, Whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. Woo! For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So, okay, so I'm not allowed to be vengeful whenever uh, Caesar is persecuting me. Whenever all my Roman friends and neighbors are insulting me and hurting me and making life difficult for me, I'm not allowed to participate in this dog-eat-dog-go-get-em-back kind of world. I can't be vengeful or revenging. I can't do any of that. How do I respond? How do I respond then? Do I just take it? Do I just sit there as a doormat? Do I do nothing? How do I respond? Well... If you're not being vengeful, then what are you doing? How are you involving your heart in that moment? If you're not keeping the account going, you know, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors kind of thing. If you're not keeping the, the, the principle going with accruing interest, then what are you doing? You're canceling the debt. If you're not having revenge, what are you doing? If you're leaving it to God, if you take that verse that says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, so I'm not going to be vengeful now. We get that idea in Romans chapter 12 as well. Then what am I doing? Well, I'm forgiving. Jesus modeled that. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. We forgive. And furthermore, forgiveness comes with it blessing. We bless. Wow. We actually bless the people who treat us bad. Yeah. That's what we're to do. It gets no more countercultural than that. Imagine if you had a whole church that was under the thumb of the Roman Empire and people were suffering, people were being persecuted, people were dying, and the church responded with, I love you still. I pray God still blesses you, oh neighbor. Wow. Well, the... The, the psalm gives us an idea of something to restrain us, something to unleash. And what's restrained here, um, you've got to keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceitful speech. What do you restrain when you're suffering? Restrain your mouth. I mean, you can talk to the Holy Spirit about this psalm, why it was quoted. But it's there. We're reading it. It says, restrain your speech. Oh, people who are going through something, restrain. So you got something you need to restrain. Put handcuffs on it. Enough already. 
how you speak in these moments is huge. And something you need to unleash. What do I unleash? I need to actually care for the people who are being bad to me. Because that was the model Jesus gave me. Wow. I need to unleash that. I need to restrain my speech and unleash that. need to be a blessing. Wow. Seek peace and pursue it. I need to, I need to unleash that. Rather than seeking, I don't know, to, to score a point, seeking to feel justified. I can use my mouth all day long to feel justified about something. But to seek... In fact, I, I journaled this morning um, about the second chapter of John and... You know, that's the verses that talk about Jesus made a cord, of a whip out of cords and drove the money changers. And a lot of people look to that passage and go, see, we can be angry. But the text never says Jesus was angry. So I journaled about it saying, stop using John chapter 2 to justify your anger. Stop that. Your anger problem. Stop that. This is not the good use of the text. There's something we need to restrain about our speech. There's something we need to, 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 to unleash about our care, even for the people who are mistreating us. Huge. I love this part in the psalm where it talks about the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. I like that because that means God sees what's happening to me. His ears are attentive to their prayer. We like that too, don't we? Because I mean, God hears our cries. You know, that's kind of like Exodus chapter 1 and God heard the moans. Coming from the Israelites, okay, that came to his ears, his, his attention, as it were. But his face. We like when the eyes and the ears are there, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That was a weird analogy for me until I found Numbers chapter 6. The Lord said to Moses, Yahweh said to Moshe, Tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. So evidently, God can turn his face towards you. But these people who are persecuting, his, these people who are persecuting God's people, he's going to turn his face against them. But you know what? God, if God's going to do that, that's God's business. But we are to be a blessing. If God's not going to bless them, that's God's business. But we are going to be a blessing. We are not going to take vengeance. God will handle that. So how do I respond if not vengeance? That's how I'm to respond. But what if I have to suffer? 13 to 17. Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? That's a great question. That's almost rhetorical. If you're doing good for people, people usually are going to leave that kind of person alone, you'd think. Although we do have that kind of, uh, that, that, that phrase, never a good deed that doesn't go unpunished. Okay, yeah, so bad things still happen, right? Okay, who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? Well, if they don't like you enough, they don't care what you're doing. They're going to harm you, aren't they? But even if, ooh, even if, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear threats. Don't be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. And now comes the verse that you all know. And you've taken it out of context, I'm sure. I know I have. 
Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. We've all taken this out of context, I'm sure. We've, people are talking about the faith, and you're supposed to have this great answer for this or that, and how do I justify my theology? People want to argue with me. The entire Christian field of apologetics, oh, I've got to defend the faith. I've got to do this. I've got to defend. We're told always have an answer for the hope that you have. Putting it back in context, you're getting your butt whipped. Life is really hard. People who are going to cause you to suffer, don't fear their threats. Don't be frightened. You're not doing that because your heart is focused on revering Christ as Lord. Now, always have an answer based upon that hope. Ah, yes. Even if, what if I have to suffer? Well, you're blessed if you suffer. Well, isn't that kind of coy there, Joel? Well, maybe, but um, I invite you to Matthew 5. It's on your page. Jesus said this, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely sake all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So even if you are persecuted for doing good, you are still blessed. Those are the words of Christ. Wow. Now, what is this all about here? Uh, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Um, yeah, how does that unfold? I put it on your page here. You have heart and mind and attitude and testimony are involved. Gosh, Joel, you can't you use a comma? I could, but it loses its focus here. It loses the drama. Heart and mind and attitude and testimony. In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. So you're going through suffering. Your heart has a duty. And that duty is, I'm exalting Jesus. He is the Lord. He is therefore my Lord. He's the boss. He's in control. He's the Alpha and Omega. He's got this. Be still and know that he is God. Boom, there it is. In my heart, Caesar is not Lord. The people who are persecuting me and whipping me and, 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 and mistreating me and insulting me, they are not Lord. In my heart, even though I go through this suffering, Jesus is Lord. He's being revered and exalted. And if I'm exalting him, that causes me to stop fearing a little bit more. Because remember Jesus once said, don't fear the one who can kill the body. Fear the one who, who can... Toss body and who has into hell who has the eternal destiny it's like the fear of the lord not the fear of man in your heart so it involves our heart even if i'm suffering it involves my heart in your heart revere christ as lord always prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks okay evolve your mind be thinking about it why aren't you cowering before me as i beat you i don't know they're suffering how are you still able to smile when you got that diagnosis? How are you still able to function with an attitude that glorifies this God of yours when you have bad things happening to you? Because I revere him as Lord. That's already been decided in my heart. So in my mind, I'm, I'm able to give an answer for this hope that I have. This great hope that I have. But I have an attitude about it. And that attitude is gentleness. 
It's respect. I remember the days when I first got diagnosed with MS. And I've told you about this before. All, all my fraternity brothers were upset. They didn't know what to do about it because I, I was the house Christian. I was the, their token Christian in their life. And so bad things weren't supposed to happen to me. They didn't quite understand how things work. But they were upset. And all I could do in, in, in those early days of the disease, I remember the first big flare-up or the second big flare-up, it made it so I was really weak and I couldn't do much. All I really could do was smile. And so I used that smile. And, I, and the guys that come up to me and say, JB, why are you smiling? I mean, don't get us wrong. We're not saying you did anything wrong, but, but, but how can you smile during this time? In my heart, I was saying, because that's all I can do. All I can do to minister right now. All I can do to, to communicate that God's still good, that God's still got this, is to smile. See, that was a gentleness move. When they later asked me, what's going on? Like, you know, guys, I, I just, I love God. I'm, I'm not giving up on God, but I wasn't using it to preach at him. I was just being gentle with them, showing respect. Certainly, if these people are, are hurting you, if they're persecuting, if you're suffering because of them, to be able to have this answer that they're asking you about, but to give it to them with respect and gentleness. When you're being persecuted, the last thing on your mind is being gentle. And I think that's the point. When you're being disrespected, the last thing on your mind is a show of respect. And I think that's the point. So it involves your, your mind and your attitude and your heart and your testimony, yeah, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak against, maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Um, if, if they're attacking your character, um, make, make it so it's slander because you actually have a decent character, because you have a clear conscience. If they're attacking your character and you've done things, you've lost that ability. Just saying, keeping a clear conscience that when they attack you, it's proved wrong. Just saying. And a good character step would be if you have done wrong, to repent and to turn from that and turn back to Jesus. And so the people attack you for that. Like, well, I, that may be proved wrong or foolish. But you see, we respond when we suffer with our heart and with our mind and with our attitude and our testimony. What, do I, what if I have to suffer that, that's our response. Verse 18 kind of gets um, interesting. For Christ also suffered for our sins. Okay, so remember, Christ is normal. We're the one looking to him as our normal. And so he suffered. Okay, so I better pay attention to how he suffered. Okay, Christ also suffered for our sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. Okay, if anybody out there wants to talk about justice... Oh, life isn't fair. There's so many inequalities and that kind of stuff. This is the greatest inequality. This is the greatest injustice of all time. Someone who was righteous died, suffered and died as if he was unrighteous. You know that verse, cursed are all those who hang on a tree. It's like Jesus was on a tree. Jesus bore that. He didn't earn that cross. I earned that cross. You earned that cross. But he bore that cross. The righteous for the unrighteous. Wow. But why? To bring you to God. 
He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. This is an interesting. Commentators argue about that last part and fill pages. Here's the best explanation I read today. Oh, yes, I was spending time today trying to unravel some of these things. Kept going. Two ways to describe life. We see this in the New Testament a lot. So take, for example, the fruit of the Spirit. Right before the fruit of the Spirit verses, Paul writes, the acts of the flesh are obvious. And he lists a bunch of fleshly fruit. Fruit, quote unquote. Okay? Some horrible, nasty things that should not be on the branches of the tree that is your life. And if they are, you know how to repent. There you go. I'm not judging you, I'm just saying. It's there. You've got two lists of fruit. One is flesh fruit. Sorry, that sounds a little awkward, but there it is. Acts, fruits of the flesh. Acts of the flesh. It's there. The second list is spirit fruit. So we already have this dichotomy. We have these two categories. Flesh, spirit. Flesh stands for sin. Something that is unregenerated, not going to heaven. Something that is living for the here and now, the fleshly, the lusts of the flesh. Okay, that idea. So Jesus put to death that. He died in the flesh, but he worshiped God, gave glory to God by putting to death that in the flesh. How is it I can say in a Christian baptism, buried in the likeness of his death, dead to sin, but now alive in Christ? That's the idea here. The flesh in terms of that, that category, he died. He died in the body, put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. So that which is now like fruit of the spirit, that second category, that category now, he was resurrected. So now there is hope. So what needed to be paid for? The flesh. Jesus paid the price for my sins. Yes, his flesh was put to death to pay for that flesh, as it were. I know I'm playing with metaphors here. So now, his new life in the Spirit. That is how we can have hope now. That the life that we once lived, we are now to die to that. We're now new creations. So now, as the, as the epistles continue, we can live by the Spirit, not by the flesh anymore, Live by this, the second category, the Spirit. Keeping in step with the Spirit. Producing fruit on our trees that are of the Spirit. No longer of the flesh. He put to death in his body the flesh. And now he was raised in the Spirit. Because of that, we have that Spirit hope. We sing this, you know, because he lives, I, I, know, I know I can face the future. Okay, because he lives, I know I will live one day. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. The two ways to describe life. Otherwise, you look at that and go, well, okay, he died in his body, then what was his spirit doing? If you take the metaphor out of there, you're thinking, well, what's he doing in the tomb for three days? And so commentators throughout history have said, well, 
his spirit must have gone somewhere, or maybe he stayed in the tomb, maybe his body was here and his spirit was over there, and maybe all this or that. Maybe there's some kind of purgatory intermediate state where his spirit kind of just had a cup of coffee over here for a while, and then three days later said, okay, it's time, boom. No, think about it in terms of categories. He was put to death in the flesh to pay for flesh, but now he was resurrected in the spirit, so now that's how we are to worship. Remember, John 4, believers will worship God in spirit and in truth. So we have this new life in Christ, new creations, as it were, that are no longer, you know, the flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives, this, this dichotomy is all over Scripture. Here it is. We have hope now in Christ because he was raised to life, not in the flesh. That same sin that he paid for, but in the spirit. So now we have hope. Because now the tables have turned. Now it's a new game. Now there's eternity in mind. Now there's hope. So then the rest of this chapter kind of goes back in time and talks about Noah. And talks about, well, let's just read it. Jesus and Noah here, 19 to 20. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. To those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. What in the world? Peter, I'm loving this chapter. It's so encouraging. And then all of a sudden, wham. What do I do with this? Trust me. This is the section of the commentary where all of a sudden it gets really technical. And you're like, oh gosh, what do we do? How do we... How do we break this down? Well, I want to start with the idea, what was Jesus proclaiming here? Let's just start there. Colossians 2.15. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he's talking about the cross, he's paid for sin. Remember, where, oh, death is your, your victory, where is your, where's your sting? Okay, it's been Disarmed. Having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he, as in Jesus, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The Roman triumph was a march where you've got the commanding general at the front, his armies following him in glistening white robes, and then the defeated captives in a train. And if they can make it happen, the enemy king at the end. You've got the shackles, he's being dragged along. That was a Roman triumphal march. That was also the image why we call when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry. That's where we get that. That was a Roman triumph. You will see that they had various arches they marched under. Very famous piece of architecture, the Arc de Triomphe in Rome. Okay, there it is. You had a triumphal march through that. That is here. He disarmed the powers and authorities. He won the war, as it were. He won the war. He made a public spectacle of them. Who are these powers and authorities? The demonic realm. Satan lost that war. All he can do anymore is the last gasp of an, of an already defeated foe. I'm not saying he's powerless. This same Peter is going to call him a roaring lion seeking to devour, but he's lost the war. He's being triumphed. So what is Jesus proclaiming here? Victory. Victory. Why do I say that? Because the text here says, after he was being made alive... So he's outside of the tomb. Easter has already taken place. This isn't like 
It has been used sometimes in history. Some people have used this to say Jesus descended into hell. And that's why he was talking while he, during those three days. No, this is after he's been made alive. Peter is clear. He was dead in the body, but now alive in the spirit. After he was made alive, he proclaimed. What's Colossians 2? Making a public spectacle of them. Who was in prison? This is where it kind of gets hard. There are some, one commentator kept saying things like, well, the Jews in Peter's day would use something like a first, uh, the, the Apocrypha, or the, the, the Apocrypha works at first Enoch. And you know how our Catholic friends have, you know, more books in their Bible. Well, first Enoch could be one of those books. And that book is a good book in terms of just what was being said. Okay, we don't read it as scripture, but okay. And we get the idea that it kind of goes back to Genesis 6, kind of where Noah's coming around, and there were people, and there was like these Nephilim, and these sons of God married the daughters of men, that kind of, and so they looked at that and said, well, these are angels who are fallen, and they slept with women, and they made these giants, and all this kind of stuff. Okay, if you want to believe that, I, I don't really share that belief, but it, it doesn't, we're not really told. You kind of have this like semantical, theological stuff with that, but is that who he preached to? Others would say, no, Peter's being clear here that these are the spirits, and usually when spirits used in the Bible like this is usually used for, for angels or demons, but we do get the idea of like the souls are under the altar in Revelation or the martyrs. We could see that here. How am I going to contend with the spirit of man any longer kind of thing in Genesis 6? So, okay, um, could it be the people, could we take this literally and say that all the huge masses of people that made fun of Noah as he built the ark. Why do you need a big boat? What, what is this thing you're calling rain? What is this thing called a flood? I don't understand why you need a boat. I mean, goodness. What's going on here? And that God waited patient for them. I don't actually have an answer for who this is. What's more important for me is the metaphor. What in the world do you mean? The end of verse 20. So God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it only a few people, eight in all, were saved. Why would that matter to Peter's audience? Because in the vast Roman Empire world, they were the few. This analogy would have really nourished them. Only a few were saved, even though everyone else is, is coming at us, even though everyone else is persecuting, persecuting, insulting, martyring, all these things. The whole world seems to be against us. We, the little few remnant that we are, that was their world. So this is the analogy that Peter gives them. Their entire world didn't like them, and God was waiting patiently for them, wasn't he? God wasn't instantly smiting them, was he? No, God still saved that few. So now that metaphor continues. Who was, so for me, who Jesus is preaching to, that doesn't matter as much to me. Did he preach as he triumphed over evil? Did he, did he proclaim that like Colossians 2 says? I don't know. 
Was that prison like a metaphorical prison? Did he, was he able to still proclaim by his very existence to the ones who are waiting for eternity to happen? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And it's to some degree, I don't care. I'm not being disrespectful to God's word. But more importantly to me is who was saved? The eight. Noah, his wife, his three boys, and their three wives. Eight. They were saved. So now you few first century Christians in Asia Minor who are getting your butt whipped. Maybe literally. God's able to save even the few. Noah and salvation, 21 and 22. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. That's the second big thing about this. Does baptism save us? In fact, you can look at the end of verse 20. Eight of all who were saved through water. The Greek word for saved is an awkward Greek word. It's not the one we're used to. You could very easily translate that verse, they, were, they came safely through the water. Well, that's kind of semantics. No, it's not. Look back to Noah and the ark. Um, I'm just going to be blunt. The water wasn't the salvation, was it? It was the problem. The whole earth was being watered. Water was killing everything. The water didn't save anybody. If you're going to make that argument, the ark saved them, as it were. So anyone who looks at this and goes, see, this is Christian baptism. Baptism has to save you. Um, you may believe that, but don't take it to Noah's ark, because the water didn't save them. The water killed everybody. Everybody but eight, Right? The great, the, I'm going to send a flood. Flood's made of water. Water just killed everything. Okay. So they were saved as in carried through the water. And the, the, I believe the grammar supports that. That translation. And verse 21, and this water symbolizes baptism. It doesn't say it is baptism. It symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand, with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Think of baptism this way. We're talking about unity in the very beginning of this chapter. What is one more thing that unifies every Christian? We all, at least we're all supposed to, submit to a public baptism. You see, in the Roman Empire, what a baptism does, I like how Martin Luther, I believe it was Martin Luther, said a baptism is an external sign of an internal change. So somebody could come to Christ and have it be a private moment in their soul. And they're saved. No one's saying anything about that. But I won't know where they stand. Their neighbors won't know where they stand. Nobody will know where, where they stand. Now, if they've had gotten baptized if they made that public Pledge of Allegiance kind of moment before God, that same Pledge of Allegiance that would now put them in the category of Nero coming after them, all of a sudden baptism, it becomes the real deal. It is the put up or shut up moment of your faith. And that's what he's talking about here. Not that baptism saving you, but verse 21, the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. Yes, that pledge. 
If you meant, it means you meant your faith because you're now willing to potentially die for it because you are outing yourself as one of them in a world that was going to persecute you. So baptism is linked to a clear conscience pledge, which is linked to your salvation. It is by grace you are saved through faith. That is your faith moment. Your clear conscience pledged before God. Where as I'm baptized, we like to ask this question. Do you admit you're a sinner? Yes. Do you trust in Jesus alone for your salvation? Very intolerant question if you think about it. Very exclusive question if you think about it. Very taking John 14, 6, literally, as it were. Do you trust in Jesus alone for your salvation? Yes. That's a clear conscience pledge. That's what saves you. That committing yourself to Jesus, trusting in him alone, trust is the same word as faith. Same idea as faith. That is faith. We are, by grace, we are saved through faith. That's salvation. Now, that salvation is wrapped up in the act of a baptism, as symbolized in a baptism, but the baptism doesn't save it, just like the waters in Noah's day didn't save them. What about this? It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That baptism saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, we have this image of baptism has the image of death to go through a baptizo dipped under the water fully like the, the, they used to do with cloth and they'd dye it. Cloth would get baptized in the Roman world, baptizo. They would dye cloth by immerse, immersing it straight into the dye and they pull it out and there it is. Okay, you're symbolizing your death and then now resurrection. Death to your flesh now alive in the Spirit. You tracking? The same idea of being born again, Jesus talked to Nicodemus about in John 3. Your flesh, now the Spirit. A second birth, as it were. Here it is. So, how does that save you? How would the resurrection of Jesus Christ save us? Well, what does the resurrection of Jesus Christ mean? It means that death no longer is boss. It means that sin no longer is boss. What are you saved from, theologically speaking? We've gone over this before. You are saved from God's wrath to be shown to express against your sin. A holy, just God has to punish sin. Your sin is not punished by you, in you. It's punished. But Jesus took that punishment. He's our substitute. So now we're saved in a full and final way because there's hope, because He lives. Because death did not end that chapter of that book. It's done. He is resurrected. So now we are saved. We are delivered unto eternal life because of that. And that's symbolized in baptism. Because Jesus died in his body to flesh and was raised to spirit, we have hope. We have salvation. Jesus is raised and currently reigns. This last verse, Jesus who has gone into heaven is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. You're saved. You're saved. It means you can say, I am saved. You can live in that salvation. You can go back to chapter one. You can now have and maintain that living hope. And that hope gets you through your days.
As Hebrews says, that hope is an anchor for your soul. Remember what God has done for you. But also now, as my voice gets just a little bit more gravelly, remember who stands subject to Christ. Evil can rear its ugly head. Satan, his demons, all that stuff, they can have their moment. But the word of God is clear. Jesus is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Remember what God has done for you. Remember who stands subject to Christ. So as we suffer, we now know how to journey with one who is suffering. If we're not going to be vengeful, how are we going to be when we suffer? What if I really have to suffer? What do I do? Yeah. Remember who stands up at the Christ. We have enemies, but they've been defeated. And they stand right now submitting to Almighty God and to Jesus. This has been Big Rev and Masterclass Theology from 1 Peter chapter 3. Thanks for letting me share. This has been Masterclass Theology. I pray you've been challenged and encouraged during today's episode, and I hope you'll continue to join us as we journey through the Bible. God bless.